This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 16. When our nation was in its infancy, a group of devout Christians left their homeland in England in search of religious freedom. After finding refuge in Holland for more than a decade, they took the treacherous and demanding trip across the Atlantic to make a new home in New England. One of the most important writings that documented this period was written by a man named William Bradford, entitled Of Plymouth Plantation. Bradford was an um, eminent figure, instrumental in planning and financing the voyage across the Atlantic in 1620 on a ship called the Mayflower. He described the group that he was a part of as religious wanderers and was the first person to call them also pilgrims. Bradford included in the reasons that they left their homeland initially was the desire to recover the purity, that's a very important word for him, for them, the purity of authentic Christianity, and that they might enjoy Christian worship in the freedom and liberty of the gospel. So as he looked around and saw what he and his fellow pilgrims were going through, his imagination was shaped by the narrative of Exodus. Listen to how Bradford tells the story. Our fathers were Englishmen, which came over this great ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Yea, let them which have been redeemed of the Lord show how he hath delivered them from the hand of the oppressor. Listen to how many connections there are in each one of those vocabulary words with what we have seen in the book of Exodus. He continues, when they wandered in the desert wilderness out of the way and found no city to dwell in, both hungry and thirsty, their soul was overwhelmed in them. They were only to rest on God's providence at night, many times not knowing where to have a bit of anything the next day. And so, as one well observed, they had need to pray that God would give them their daily bread. At this point in in our journey together through the book of Exodus, we are watching this group of pilgrims who crossed through a great ocean on dry ground, and now they face the threat of perishing in the wilderness. They're wandering through a desert with no city to dwell in. Last week they were thirsty. This week they are hungry and their souls are overwhelmed on this journey. But the Lord goes before them. But the Lord of hosts is with them. They are only to rest in God's providence as he supplies their daily bread. This is what we see the children of Israel doing. This is what our early American fathers and mothers did. And the same for us. 
In what ways have you experienced God provide for you? The lessons that we learned last week through the miracle at Mara were not just mastered in a day in the hearts of God's people. Only a few weeks have passed now, and they already need to learn these lessons yet once again. In Exodus 16, 1-21, we find the Lord patiently, lovingly leading and teaching his people to walk by faith in things unseen and to trust in him, yes, as their redeemer, yes, as their savior, and continually as their provider. As the people once again give voice to grumbling, the Lord tests them. He tests their trust And in doing so, he demonstrates his grace and goodness by providing for them the bread of life. I want to look at our passage under three headings. One, verses one through three, rumbling, grumbling, unbelief. Second, verses four through 12, a taste of blessing. And then finally, verses 13 through 21, a taste of of testings, rumbling, grumbling, unbelief, and two different kinds of tastes. If you'll just remain seated this morning as we read together from God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus 16, 1-21. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger." Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then... You shall know that I am the Lord, your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning dew, lay around the camp. 
And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is rumbling, grumbling, unbelief. The Hebrews leave this resort like Palm Springs in the middle of the desert. This place called Elam with its supply of water and food. And they set out once again into the wilderness of sin. Isn't that kind of how you hear it in your mind? The wilderness of sin. You, you just expect the noonday sun to grow dark as midnight. In the distance, wild coyotes are howling, letting us know danger ahead. Well, in some ways that's true, but sin is simply short for the region of Sinai. And actually in Hebrew, it's pronounced seen, not sin. So those things start to get deflated a little bit. Yet, it is a wilderness that would be very demanding on this massive caravan. Some scholars say as many as two million people traveling through the desert. Moses includes the calendar dates. They've been, to let us know, they've been gone about six weeks now as they make their way through the wilderness of sin, that the bellies of the people are rumbling and the mouths of the people are grumbling. We learned last week that the word grumbling is more than just complaining. Rather, it is an act of unbelief. It reflects the rebellious attitude of the Israelites. And there are some interesting characteristics about this sort of grumbling that I want to make sure we see. First, the grumbling has grown. Back at Marah, the people were complaining about God. But it's not that they were all complaining, just some of them, Scripture says. But how fast grumbling spreads and grows from one person to the next. Now, it's the whole congregation of the people of Israel who are grumbling. Now, the church should have silenced grumbling in their own hearts and in the hearts of their friends and loved ones, but instead they just pile on. And the sound of murmuring continues to rise. It's more like the sound of just belly aching going before each other to the Lord. So the grumbling has grown. Second, their grumbling was misplaced. Even though it was God they were irritated with, they knew enough about him to know they couldn't go straight to him and just murmur like this. 
So what they do is go to his messenger, Moses, and they even pull in Aaron into their sights, into this line of fire. And then down in verses 7 and 8, Moses, like a shepherd, pastorally tries to help the people see it's not him that they are mad at. They are mad at God. But this misplaced blame is not a new theme in the Bible. It's as old as the Garden of Eden where Adam blames Eve for his sin, where Eve blames the serpent for hers. So it's as old as the garden and new as well, the mirrors in some of our bathrooms this very week. Third, their grumbling was wrong. And I mean that in the just flagrant way. It was wrong of this, them to do this, but yet it was wrong in other ways as well. As their stomachs rumble in the desert, they wrongly think back to their time in Egypt as if it were better there. They think, oh man, in Egypt, we had all we needed. We had meat pots filled with tender barbecue. We had as many Sister Schubert rolls as we could stand. We were so content. We wish we could have died there as slaves with enough food than out here starving of hunger. But we've, we've seen this story developing, haven't we? We know that this is just not right. It's wrong. Life in Egypt was terrible. In Exodus 2, they were groaning in pain for God to save them. Here in Exodus 16, they are grumbling because he did they look back on their life before salvation and they romanticize the experience. You know, it wasn't that bad back there. At least we had food in our bondage. As Texans, we, as Texans, we have this phrase, remember the Alamo. And what that phrase is meant to do is remind us of the sacrifice of freedom. Well, here, the Israelites were saying, remember Egypt just trying to parade this comfort that they had made up in their own minds, faulty memories of life in bondage. The most indicting statement, I think, in these opening verses is found in verse 3. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. Unbelievable. Here they rail against the very hand that had redeemed them, the mighty hand that had saved them, the very hand of the Lord. These lessons are meant to teach us, these scenes are meant to teach us from the lives of our parents so long ago, in some scenes, how to follow the Lord, and in many like this one, how not to. So how can we honor the Lord with our hearts and our lips and our lives? How can we fill our, our lives not with grumbling, but with thanksgiving? Not unbelief, but faith. Well, in a way, with this scene, we, we just do the opposite of what we see them doing. So, what do we find here? Don't let grumbling grow. In your own heart, in the hearts of those that you follow Jesus with, speak truth when you hear grumbling, both to yourself and to those around you. Second, don't misplace 
your frustrations with God on others. Don't look at your life and shift where you really feel blame with God onto your spouse or your children or your employer or your church. Honestly, go before the Lord and lament the brokenness you see. And instead of grumble, groan for the brokenness that you see. And then third, and I think perhaps especially this is important to us, don't romanticize your past. Don't overinflate life before Christ. We, like the Israelites, are prone to feel the pull of our past, sometimes romanticizing life before Jesus through this filter that edits, the filter that exaggerates, but that is simply not reality. So when grumbling unbelief is at work in us, we must remember the reality of our condition before Christ. Remember how dead in sin you were. Remember how you had no hope in this world or the world to come. Remember how the sweet taste of sin soon turned bitter in your mouth. And remember the kindness of God shown to you in Christ. And allow the truth of the gospel to silence your grumbling. To silence your rumbling, grumbling on belief. The second thought we find in this passage is a taste of blessing, verses 4 through 12. This is a stunning view of God's grace toward his people. As he meets the needs of his complaining kids... The same God who heard their groaning in Egypt heard their grumbling in the wilderness and his heart doesn't pull back from them like yours and mine would. Instead, with compassion, he goes to them. God pulls Moses aside and tells him what he's about to do in the lives of his people. And instead of punishing them, which would have been right, he outlines a list of blessings. There was one time when Cade was small that he needed to be spanked. And I sat him aside and said, son, what do you deserve? He said, a spanking. And instead, I gave him candy to show him what mercy and grace look like. One time. (laughs) One time. These gifts are not given so that the people of God would simply stop murmuring Each expression of the gracious provision of the Lord is meant to foster trust in Israel by reminding Israel who he is and what he has done for her. I was overwhelmed this week just looking through these verses at the kindness of the Lord to these people. I was overwhelmed looking at these verses thinking about God's kindness to me. There's a lot of blessings. I've tried to break them into categories. The first category is this. God's people get to taste the Lord's goodness. The Lord promises he's going to give his people bread and meat, but in supernatural ways. The bread is going to rain down from heaven so that his people will have provision. The last time we saw something rain down from heaven sent by God, it was hail that destroyed his enemies. Now... Provision will rain down from heaven to bless his children. 
And every morning, he would give his people exactly what they need. And if it's meat they want, well, God can provide that too. And in something as ordinary as food, they will taste and see that the Lord is good every time this food passes across their tongue. But this is about more than food. This is not the only blessing. The next one is that the people will see the glory of the Lord. They will see the glory of the Lord. We're told in verse 7 that God promises to show his people his glory. That's the first time that phrase is ever used in the Bible. They will know that he has heard their grumbling against him. The graciousness of God giving his people a glimpse of his glory even as they grumble. Sometimes when God shows his glory, there can be devastating consequences. Here, the demonstration of his glory is to remind his people that they have not been forgotten or abandoned, that he is with them. Verse 10 tells us how the very next day, the Lord shows his people his glory in the pillar of cloud and fire that has been attending their every step. It doesn't tell us exactly how, but somehow God demonstrates his glory. He radiates his radiance to his people in this glowing reminder that his presence is with them. The third blessing mentioned is that they would know the Lord, and this is perhaps the greatest. Verse 6 and 12 each echo the same truth. The reason God gave his people miraculous food in the desert, the reason he showed his glory is so that his people would know that he was God and who God was. That he was the God who had redeemed them. The God who had saved them. And now they would know that the Lord is with them. The main purpose for sending manna and quail is not simply to fill the empty stomachs of the Israelites, but ultimately so that they would know the message of verse 6. Look at it with me. This is what God wants them to know. That it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. This is the reason God wants to be known. God of self-disclosure makes himself known to us. So our lives, like our forebears, are marked with blessings. I bet if you just took a blank sheet of paper and started listing right now, you would run out of ink or paper one. We have tasted God's goodness in immeasurable ways. Sometimes he has provided for us supernaturally. Some of you can attest to that. Other times he has provided for us through the ordinary means through the common grace of giving us strength and energy and provision. But each of us who are in Christ could surely attest that the Lord has shown us his goodness day by day. And we have seen the glory of God in a way that they had only dreamed. They saw it in a shadow of things to come. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. Though we have not seen him with our eyes, we've seen him with the eyes of faith. And Christ is the perfect demonstration of the glory of God. And our eyes have been open to that. 
supernaturally open. You couldn't open your eyes. God opened your eyes to see his glory. And we know him. We know him. What a gift. We know him as our God. You can say that this morning if you're in Jesus. He is your God. So I wonder if we might even just stop this morning and give thanks to the Lord for every little taste of blessing that we have known in our lives. And finally, we see a taste of testing. Verses 13 through 21. Now, the blessings that God gave to his people were meant to bless. They were acts of love given to bless his kids, but they were also meant to test. Sometimes it's after the testing comes the blessing, and sometimes the blessing is a test itself in the Christian life. So why this test? Why is God testing his people? Remember we looked last week. He's not trying to say, gotcha, to his kids. He's trying to teach them who he is and how to live in light of who he is as his chosen people. Well, the Israelites are just hyper-focused on water and food, things that God is not concerned with. And they're not paying attention to faith and obedience, things that God is supremely concerned with. So this is not just an act of blessing, it's also a testing. And I want to look at this test through the lens of both the gracious provision of God and the gracious test of God. This gracious provision of God is nothing short of miraculous. Meat and bread were this kind of meat, this kind of bread were things that the people had never experienced before. The meat that God gave them that first evening. He didn't give it to them every night. This is just the first evening, and he does it again in Numbers, I think, chapter 11. But this feast was a feast of quail. Psalm 78 tells us poetically that the number of quail were as numerous as the sand in the sea. I have a friend who's a pastor of a church in Houston who, um, who has this video that went viral when he was out hunting with uh, this old Longhorn quarterback, Colt McCoy. They were out hunting, and there were video cameras there shooting it. They were doing a, a, like a book for men or something. And they caught this on film. There's this, there's this dove just flying through the air, and they've got shotguns. They're ready to rock. And all of a sudden, Matt just reaches up and just grabs this dove out of the air. He's like showing anybody. Like, anybody, has anybody ever had that happen? That's amazing. This is more amazing. Likely what happens on the exact moment that God said, this night, I'm going to give you meat. This flock of quail are migrating over the Red Sea and have grown so weary they all just collapse there. And you don't even have to grab them out of the sky. You can just run around and pick them up as many as you need. And then you pick them up, you pluck them, and then you smoke them in the big green egg. You wrap them in bacon, which they would not have done, but we would. Just as God said, everything according to plan. Amazing. And what about this bread? The first time they saw this substance and tasted it, they literally said, what is this? And that became its name, 
manna, which means what is this? And through the years, scientists and scholars have tried to prove that this was possible or not possible. On the possible side, uh, in the 1950s, um, there was one scientist who concluded that it was honeydew excretion from these insects in the region that lived on tamarisk trees. And that's what this substance was that turned to bread somehow. Others have thought it might be lichen that grows on the rocks of the wilderness that are about the size of a pea, but it's so light that the wind can just blow it away. If we consider two other biblical passages, look at Exodus 16.31, which we'll be looking at next week as we think about the Sabbath together. Exodus 16.31 tells us that it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste was like wafers made with honey. Let's just pause right here, put this all together. So we've got cooked quail. We've got honey-glazed bread. This sounds a lot like Chick-fil-A chicken minis, doesn't it? (laughs) I'm going out on a limb here. I'm just saying... That's what it sounds like to me, and I think this is confirmed in Psalm 78, 25, which describes it as the bread of the angels. <laughs> and we'll see even next week, like Chick-fil-A's close on Sunday, which, will, you know, it all makes sense to me. I'm joking. But I think John Calvin is incredibly helpful when he says it appears, regardless of what scientists or scholars think, it appears beyond a doubt, this food was created miraculously, contrary to the order of nature. And then John Calvin is always so helpful. He, he outlines eight, eight ways that this bread is so supernatural. I'm just going to go through them very quickly with you. And my aim is to kind of just lead us in worship through this bullet point list as we think about supernatural ways of our God. One, this manna did not appear until Moses said it would, in obedience to God's command. It's a remarkable thing. Two, no change of weather prevented it from being provided for over 40 years. Summer, fall, winter, spring, weather didn't change it. It was provided. Three, there was enough food for every person. Two million people being fed miraculously from the hand of God. Day by day, 40 years. On the sixth day, the quantity was doubled so that they could rest on the Sabbath. Fifth, if people tried to take more than a day's provision, it spoiled. Nothing does that. Sixth, the special food was only given to Israel, not their neighbors. God didn't just pour out this food on the whole world, only on his chosen people. Seven. The manna stopped as they stood at the border of Canaan. So for these 40 years, God provided for them day by day by day through the gift of manna. And then as they enter into the promised land, he'll provide in other ways. And then eighth, the manna is placed, a little portion is placed in a vessel and kept by God's instruction, that is so critical, as a remembrance to the Lord. It was placed in this special vessel and placed within the Ark of the Covenant, which would be the center of the worship of God's people as they remembered how God provided for them through supernatural 
means. So a gracious blessing. And then the second piece is that this is a gracious test of God. This testing was mentioned in verse 4. Look back there with me. We, We grazed over it then, but now we need to look at it. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So the test was this. God had instructed his people, every day I'm going to provide for you. And I want you to take exactly what you need. He told them exactly how much that was. And you use that every day. Don't take more. Don't take less. I just love these words. Nothing left over and no lack. Oh my, I just, what instructive words those are to us. For the people of God, nothing left over, no lack. God's provision was perfect. Well, how much was an omer? Kids, look at me real quick. If, um, if you're lucky, later today you'll be at a Super Bowl party. Okay, and over on the counter are going to be these two liter jugs filled with nectar, known as Dr. Pepper, okay? And that two liters is about as close. Now listen, I'll give you a pro tip right here. You need to listen quick. Like, Mom doesn't know if how many times you've been back if you drink out of those. You can go back for refills. If you take the can, you're busted, but these you can do. Well, this is how much daily the Lord told them to give. An omer is what this is called, okay? So like a two liter and this was plenty of supply for them to bake with and make enough bread where they were provided. Now, the meat and the bread had been provided by the generous hand of the Lord. The question is now whether Israel will obey God's instructions. Would they obey and trust the giver or would they disobey and just consume the gifts? That's the question. In verse 17 and 18, show us. But they did not obey the Lord. Leftover supply turned sour. It was filled with worms. And the air was filled with the stench of disobedience. Moses doesn't hide how he feels about this. You see it there? Moses was angry. But scripture never says God was. That is a remarkable truth. Why would that be? Well, God's teaching his children. He's testing his children. He was teaching them that they don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Was there punishment for their disobedience? Well, yes, the bread turned to worm-infested sourness. But Deuteronomy 8.16 summarizes well what is happening here. When Moses said, It was the Lord who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good to you in the end. And now we're back to last week where the Lord tests his people for their good. Where Israel went into the desert and in their hunger grumbled with unbelief, Jesus went into the desert and walked by faith. 
The apostle Matthew tells us in chapter 4 of his gospel this wonderful account of Jesus in the wilderness and there tempted to sin by Satan himself. Jesus fed on the word of God using passages from this very scene to defeat the enemy and where our fathers failed to keep God's law and commandments in the wilderness, Jesus kept it perfectly in their place and in our place. A people who could never obey God's law and commands on our own. Uh, I mentioned to you in the letter I wrote you last night that the Apostle John records this conversation that Jesus had with some people after he had fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. And against the backdrop of the miracle they had witnessed, Jesus points their attention back to Exodus 16, to these Israelites in the wilderness wandering to remind them how God gave them food. As the bread of life himself stood before them, John 6.33, he says he proclaimed, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the crowd says, Sir, give us this bread. The bread you're talking about. We hunger. Would you feed us? And Jesus reveals who he is and what he is like. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So here's my question for you who are not yet in Christ. Do you hunger for forgiveness of your sin? Is there an emptiness in the pit of your stomach that you've tried to fill with everything under the sun and nothing satisfies? This is the way it's meant to be because only Jesus can satisfy. And so today, if you're hungry for forgiveness of sin, call on God. Call out to Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Repent of your sin and look to the only one who can give you life and he will give it freely. Jesus came to satisfy our great need of salvation. So like these early pilgrims in Exodus 16 and like the pilgrims we looked at in the early days of our nation, so together we pilgrim through this world. And the Lord graciously, lovingly leads and teaches us to walk by faith in things unseen and to stand on his promises, to trust in him, not only as our redeemer, though completely so, and also as our savior and daily as our provider to look to him for our daily bread, which is given to us in Christ, who is the bread of life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word that feeds us, that instructs us, that teaches us, that tests us. I pray that you would give us an appetite for the things of God that's so strong that our appetite for the things of this world grows strangely dim. Let us be satisfied in Christ. We ask in his name. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.